Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We are meaningful. Just like anyone else, I was building an interdepartmental network who could vouch for me. A necessity if you want acknowledgement from organizational leadership. So imagine my surprise when a tenured employee complained that I was not supporting her appropriately and put this in an email to my manager. I asked for clarification with every intention of understanding my shortcoming and really just looking for a resolution with my accuser. My supervisor told me not to worry about it. Why? Well, because my written request for feedback had caused this woman so much distress that she began to, wait for it, cry and whine that no one wants to help her. So to avoid dealing with it, my supervisor pulled me off the project. There was no closure for her or me, but the work still had to be done. Later that week, the culprit took to vacation without completing the task, and who was asked to step up? Yep, me. Just as I was speaking with my supervisor about the situation, in an attempt to display my commitment to teamwork, a client lead walked past our cubicles and asked, What are you over here bitching about now? All you do is bitch, bitch, bitch about things. I stopped mid-conversation with my white male supervisor and asked, Did she just call us bitches? His look of surprise and my disdainful expression validated, one, that it had actually happened, and two, it wasn't okay. He said he would handle it, and he had seen it happen, so I was relieved, and I trusted him. I let it slide for a few weeks, waiting on due process to run its course. When I asked if it had been resolved, I was given no follow-up information. Got it. We were sweeping this under the rug. Two incidents of not feeling safe in the workplace. Two times I'd done my part and followed proper protocol. Twice I had been let down. By the policy, sure. But by the people who were supposed to protect my psychological safety, too. Little did I know that my perceived reputation had followed me from this unsubstantiated gossip, and it had weight. I was taken off projects to avoid anyone being held accountable for my behavior. It was normalized for these people to speak negatively and disrespect employees with no repercussions. These mouths hold the cards for projects and career ladder movement. I am now stalled in my progression because of it. Not for lack of trying, either. I went into the interview process for a leadership role, unsuspectingly, and one of my panel members brought up the year-old stories to serve as proof for their final judgment of, I would not be a good fit for the team. My biggest regret is holding my tongue in those moments 
and playing for the system that I trusted. This system wasn't built with my safety or innocence in mind. I was so concerned with not seeming like an angry black woman that I didn't show up as I should. And they ended up elevating that stereotype anyways. Now, I'm not responsible for the perceptions that others have of me, and neither is leadership really. But when it ends in rumors that people use to discriminate against me and my work, someone missed the ball. And it wasn't me. Hi, everyone. This is Crystal. And this is Krista. And today we're joined by Dr. Timothy Clark. Dr. Clark is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, a global leadership consulting and training organization. He's the author of five critically acclaimed books on leadership, culture, and change. His newest release, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation, is considered a breakthrough contribution in the field of organizational culture and transformation. Dr. Clark earned a PhD in social science from Oxford University. We're so happy to have you on the show today, Dr. Clark. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You had the opportunity to hear the falsely accused narrative. Based on your work, is this story familiar to you and why? It is familiar, and unfortunately, it's a situation that repeats itself all too often. And by the way, it was extremely well done. So it's, it's timely, it's relevant, and it's, it's instructive. And so I think that your listeners will find it very helpful and actionable in the context of their professional lives. Claps all around to Krista, the, the voice <laughs> behind psychological safety. Thank oh, yeah. you. Very well done, Krista. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's really just about, you know, taking these stories uh, from these women who are not only willing to come forward, but willing to be vulnerable with us. And uh, I think my favorite part is listening to what they have to say, yes, but then also making sure that I hold myself accountable to telling their truth in a way that's accurate, but in a way that's powerful, captivating, and whatever else you want to call it. All of our narratives lend themselves to this greater theme of what it truly means to feel psychologically safe in a space. So I try to really respect that aspect of telling their story too. On that note, um, this narrative speaks really, really closely to what it means to feel psychologically safe in a space. So or how not. do you, or not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. In that vein, Tim, how would you define psychological safety? I define psychological safety as the ability to interact with others without fear of negative consequences. So you can ask yourself this question, is it expensive to be yourself in a social setting? So particularly in, in the workplace, on your team, is it expensive? Is it socially, emotionally, politically, economically expensive. That's the bellwether. That's the all important question that we can all ask ourselves. And, uh, and then we know the answer based on how we feel. I love the way that you broke out the ways in which it can be expensive, whether that's socially, emotionally, politically, or economically. Because I think a lot of times when people think about workplaces, Workplaces don't necessarily have the best history for being 
great. I think if you've never worked at a company where you felt like you were welcome, you felt like you belonged, and that your differences were expected, that sometimes you're just like, oh, that's just work. And when you think about psychological safety, you often just think about the economical part of it. So if I lose my job tomorrow, what am I going to do? And I almost feel like people often feel like the social and emotional parts are just trade-offs of having a job. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's so true. And, is, and, and the reason for that, I think, we all realize is that we have normalized in many organizations behavior that's really unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I know early in my career, I experienced that where we tolerated the intolerable and I think, thankfully, thankfully, there are forces at work in organizations, especially with millennials that are pouring in, and they're saying, hang on a second, time out. Uh, did you just say that, or did someone just do that? Or they, you know, we're, mm-hmm. not, we're not allowing ourselves to normalize what we used to normalize, and thankfully, because that is how it should be, and it's liberating for all of us. So we're, I think we're making progress. Yeah. And I, you made a really good point, right? Because I am a millennial. I find myself sometimes, you know, in the moments that I do challenge the status quo, feeling wrong. Like I've done something wrong because it really is so against what we've already created and normalized and basically systemized, right? Because a lot of the lack of psychological safety is around systems and processes that exist, um, continuing to oppress the identities of, of these who have the potential to be falsely accused. So I did, I did like that you broke it up that way. And uh, Crystal and I have a lot of conversations around how her and I experience psychological safety differently because of the experiences that we've had but also because I, I don't know why, why is it that we experience it so differently sometimes and that we like butt heads around what is and isn't okay. Mm. Yeah. I think it's because I live in, well, I want to live in ideal state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that based upon the companies that I've worked for in the past, I've seen what good can look like. So I won't accept anything less. And I think for you, you've seen what good can look like, but that's very recent for you. Mm -hmm. So I think for you, you're just like, well, if this is what we have to do, then how do we navigate these situations if we can't change the situation tomorrow? Yeah. And I, I think to your point, there's just levels to it. Yeah, for sure. So Tim, in your book, you mentioned stages of psychological safety. That's right. Can you share with us what those stages are? I'd love to. So there are four stages of psychological safety. The first one is what we call inclusion safety. Inclusion safety means that you feel a part of the team, that you fit in, that you've been accepted. And this satisfies the basic human need to belong. Humans long to belong. And so this is where we start. And think about it. Just just watch people, right? In any social setting, the workplace, or it could be any other social setting. If a, if a new person comes, 
what are they what are they concerned about right off the bat? They're concerned about fitting in. Mm-hmm. They I want to like belong. Them. So mm-hmm. that's why this is stage one, because it mirrors the natural human need. We're biologically driven to connect and we want to feel part of the team. So that's stage one. Now, what's, what's interesting is that many organizations stumble on stage one, mm-hmm. creating an inclusive environment, right? Mm-hmm. But this is just the foundation. So that's stage one. Then we go to stage two. Stage two is what we call learner safety. Learner safety means that you can engage in, in all aspects of the learning process without fear of being embarrassed or marginalized or punished in some way. So that means asking questions, giving and receiving feedback, uh, experimenting, even making mistakes. And think about how important this is. So what we know about learning is that learning is both an emotional and an intellectual process. It's the interplay of the head and the heart. The head and the heart work together. And so what happens is if you're in an environment that does not give you learner safety, if someone pushes the fear button, then what does that do? It triggers what we call the self-censoring instinct. And when someone triggers that self-censoring instinct, we retreat, we curl up, Mm -hmm. and we manage personal risk. How can you learn if you feel that way? You can't. Yeah, you definitely can't learn. And what what I love about this one is that we talk all the time about risk. Can you take a risk in these particular roles at these companies? And we know from research that companies that do allow for healthy risk taking are more successful than companies where people feel like I can't make a mistake. If I make a mistake, I'm going to get fired. So as you mentioned, they shrink and they're just like, okay, I'm going to retreat now and not say a word because I don't want to be in trouble for making a mistake. That's right. And so they're not learning. They're not learning and they're not developing as they could, which is, uh, that's a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So that's learner safety. That's stage two. Then we go to stage three. Stage three is what we call contributor safety. Contributor safety means that I can contribute according to my skills and experience and talents and abilities, and I can make a difference as a full-fledged member of the team. So again, we are mirroring the progression of natural human needs. Once people learn, when we learn something, what's our natural instinct? We want to go use it. We want to go apply it, and we have a deep-seated need to make a difference. We want to contribute. We want to make a difference. So that's it. So it logically comes after learner safety. Then we go to stage four, the last stage, which we call challenger safety. Now, you really got to think about this one. This, This is fascinating. Challenger safety is the culminating stage. It's the last stage. And it's the highest level of psychological safety. Why? Because challenger safety means that you feel safe in challenging the status quo. Now, to be able to challenge the status quo, you have to put yourself at your highest level of personal risk and vulnerability. Therefore, you need the highest level of psychological safety to protect you 
as you're doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think you can be between stages? Because I feel like I'm, I teeter between stage three and stage four. And then it also depends on who I'm dealing with. Right. And I can be in stage three or stage four. Is that possible? It depends on your context, Crystal. So I think what, if you are paying very close attention to your environment and the interpersonal dynamics, and then there's two things that, that you have to focus on. Number one, what kind of respect do I feel? Number two, what level of permission do I feel? Because, mm-hmm. this, because your psychological safety, that is a, that's the intersection. It's the combination of the level of respect and the level of permission that are coming together. So what, what may happen, Crystal, is you may be in one setting and say, you know what? I feel challenger safety. I feel safe enough to challenge the status quo. But you may go to a different setting with different people, mm-hmm. and you may not feel that way. You may, you may even feel, I wonder if I'm even included, right? Yeah. So it can really vary depending on where we are and what we're doing and, and uh, who we're with. Yeah, I'm so happy that we walked through these because it really speaks so much to what we talked about just before we jumped into it, which is where I think, and this brings clarity to it, Crystal and I often tend to be in different stages. And I think that safety takes on a different stage depending on what team or to Crystal's point, your point, Tim, depending on who you're interacting with. I'm actually pretty irritated as we walk through these because especially stage two, stage three, and stage four, often in performance conversations, the onus of how well this is going is put on the employee. So a lot of the times when I've been in like conversations around my competencies and how things are growing and how things are developing, Mm. I've been given the responsibility of making sure that these are happening and that my teams and my managers are seeing me grow these pieces. But this perspective is actually like, Krista can't do that until you lay the foundation for it first. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So let's, let's build on that, Krista, because that's such a good point. So let's go back to learner safety. At each stage, there is what we call a social exchange. Okay, so let's actually go back to stage one. The social exchange at stage one is that I accept you based on the fact that you are human. And so there's a very important principle here. Worth precedes worthiness. When it comes Mm -hmm. to inclusion, we're not judging your worthiness. That is not what we are doing. Just by virtue of the fact that you have flesh and blood, you are entitled to inclusion safety. It is a basic human right. So, you're, so, so the exchange is, if you're human, then I'm going to invite you into my society. Okay, now mm-hmm. if we go to learner safety, what's the social exchange? The social exchange is, I will encourage you to learn in exchange for your engagement in the learning process. But what happens so often is sometimes people don't have the confidence to learn mm-hmm, and they right. bring, they bring anxiety and inhibitions to the learning process. So where should the onus be back to your point, Krista, 
it should be with the leader. The leader is the mm -hmm. first mover. Does that make sense? The leader is the first mover. Let me give you an example. In the book, I, ha I give a case study. Every 26 seconds in the United States of America, a high school student drops out of school. Oh, wow. Every 26 seconds. Why is that? Is it because they don't have the mental bandwidth and the capability to do the work? Absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Barring some kind of legitimate learning disability, they can do the work. So why are they dropping out? Because they don't feel the support in the mm -hmm. learning process. Because as I said, it is both emotional and intellectual. So we, so the leader has to be the first mover. Now let's go to stage three. What's the social exchange for contributor safety? It's I'm going to give you autonomy and I'm going to give you guidance and I'm going to give you encouragement in exchange for what? Results. Mm -hmm. I want results. I want a contribution. Yeah. But I, but I have a stewardship to give you that, that guidance and that encouragement and that autonomy. Okay, now when you get to challenger safety, this is really interesting. The social exchange is, is, is this. If you want my candor, I need to give you air cover. So that's the exchange. Air cover for candor. I need to protect you in that vulnerable act of taking on the status quo. And if I do that, what are you going to do? You're going to do it again. And I'm going to get your best thinking. I'm going to get, I'm going to get the best that you have. We really are going to debate issues on their merits and we're going to find solutions. Mm -hmm. So those are the social exchanges. I'm really, really loving this and I'm loving it because, well, first of all, um, all of my managers and leaders going forward, will get a copy of your book, but <laughs> I'm loving it because you break it down into all of these different layers and give roles within each of the stages of safety mm -hmm. for how each person should be behaving in order for it to be successful. Mm -hmm. So it's a dance. It's not that one person holds all of the responsibility, but obviously if a group has more power and more opportunity, they're going to have more accountability in the way that this works and whether or not it's successful. I think also all of these different um, stages of safety, while they're amazing, I think that there's nuance, especially for people of color within them, mm -hmm. right? Because yes. you mentioned a lot of things about this like social um, engagement, the exchange rather. Right. A lot of the times, if you can answer this question for us, how does identity play a role in the way that those exchanges are executed? Well, sometimes identity play it, it identity always plays a role, but sometimes right. it works against you if you mm -hmm. may be in a deficit position and maybe you are the object of a stereotype bias. Mm -hmm. And so then you're not you're not on a level playing field and you have to overcome that deficit. And that, so that makes it extra difficult, extra challenging. There's no question about it. I think that what is so helpful then is for uh, women of color in particular, if they can, 
if they can increase their powers of observation and powers of perception to the next level, mm -hmm. then that will help them enormously because, and this is really a matter of emotional intelligence, isn't it? If sure. they're paying close attention to the way that they're, the, the way that people are responding to them, they'll, they'll become even more effective and they'll be able to accelerate their own development interpersonally because they pick up on cues so easily. Mm -hmm. They read the room so easily. They understand power dynamics so easily. They can even detect hidden bias. Mm -hmm. So they just become mm -hmm. so effective. And, and so that's why my, my recommendation is focus on powers of observation and powers of perception. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And you've already started. So I just want to hear more about the actionable steps that black and brown women can take to navigate these spaces. I super love your call out around emotional intelligence, because that's what I identify as one of my superpowers. And I actually thought it had no place in corporate spaces ever. I thought it was never going to help me. And it didn't matter that I could a read people so well, but also be anticipate how they were going to react to things. Oh, I've got to respond to that, Krista. Go, go. So, <laughs> so here's, here's the way that I would frame that. Your emotional intelligence is your delivery system. Okay. So think about it this way. You have IQ, but let's think about IQ in a broader sense. IQ, all of your knowledge, your skills, your experience, your, your competency, all of that. Your, your EQ delivers your IQ. It's your delivery system. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's why, so then if we, if let's, let's hearken back to that great quote by Maya Angelou, when she said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. Oh, they'll no. forget what you did, yes. but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Now, how is that mm. possible? Because of your delivery system, your emotional intelligence is your conduit of influence. Wow. That's how, that's how that works. And it's that's true. That's my quote, Tim. That's my <laughs> quote. Uh, yes. That's true. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Um, in, in your mind, right, when we were talking earlier about normalizing different things, when we're in a situation that behavior is already normalized, especially unacceptable behavior, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate when we're falsely accused? Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the narrative. What I, would, what I would emphasize is that a woman of color that finds herself in this kind of situation, number one, focus on maintaining your personal poise and composure. And here's why. You don't want to make your poor behavior the object of attention because if you misbehave as a result of another's misbehavior, what happens? It often transfers the negative attention to you. Let's go back to, to football, right? I, I played college football. So if someone committed a, a penalty – right? Or like a personal foul. Well, another player would retaliate. Who got caught? It was always the second player that they threw the flag on. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Sports. But it wasn't yeah. the first, it wasn't the first player that committed the, that personal foul. So, so no matter what, at all hazards, maintain your poise and your composure, your professionalism, your emotional intelligence, because that you'll be able to navigate through. No one's going to be able to point to you and, and start criticizing you because you went off the rails or you were unprofessional in some way. So number one, do that. Number two, assess the situation. Can this be, can we change this? Is, can we reform this? Are there people who are willing to be accountable? Are there people who are willing to step forward? You've got to gauge the leadership around you and you've got to come to a decision, a conclusion about whether you think that you can flourish and be successful there, keep on going, or whether you say, you know, it's not going to work here. It's just not going to work because people are dug in. There's all kinds of lingering, hidden bias here, and it's all been normalized and, and nobody really cares. So you have to look, look at the whole situation and say, can I stay and be successful? And can I be myself, right? As we, we, we started the discussion, is it, is it too expensive to be myself? And only you can make that decision. That's a matter of judgment. But I would be very systematic about assessing the situation objectively. Because sometimes it makes sense to stay and push for progress. And sometimes it's wiser to leave and go to a place where you can flourish. And ultimately, that's your decision. So a question that I often get from people is, do I have to be a different person? And I love that you made the statement that no one can answer this question for you. No one can Mm -hmm. make the decision for you. You have to make it yourself. So when I think about all of the different ways in which it can be expensive to be you, For me, I would really be looking to prioritize those things like what's most important, Um, emotional expensiveness. Is it the economical reasons? Is it socially? Is it politically? So just trying to prioritize what's most important to me before I make that decision. And I'm never the person who's going to tell someone. Be a different person, code switch in order for you to fit into this environment. But I'm often telling people that they have to weigh the situation. What's gonna work best for you? And for some people that answer is, I'm gonna go along to get along for now, and then I'll leave later. So I I love that you called out, you have to make that decision for yourself and no one else can make it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I would just say one other thing though, Krista, and that is that you, you may see that there are There's a lot of hidden lingering bias or prejudice in an environment. Mm -hmm. But another thing that I would encourage everyone to think about, and that is that there are so many champions and advocates out there for women of color. You got to know that they're everywhere and they don't look like you oft times, Mm -hmm. but they are your champions and they are your advocates and they will do all that they can to help you be successful. 
And I think that that needs to be said as well. For sure. And I would say that those are the people that have the social capital that you might not have. And again, as you pointed out, be able to advocate for you. Good point. Yeah. And I'll, to quote Rihanna, uh, pull up, like show yourself (laughs) if you're an ally. And if, if you believe in the things that, you know, we've been talking about and you're one of those people who has the power and the social, social capital in your space and you believe in these things, say something. Let us know that you're an ally. Let us know that you're a champion for us so that we feel hopefully the highest level of psychological safety with at least one person in our organization if we don't have it already. That's right. Definitely see something, say something. Mm -hmm. So Tim, we've really enjoyed having this conversation with you today, learning more about how you define psychological safety Uh, what the stages of psychological safety are, and also just how women of color can navigate the workplace if they feel they have a lack of psychological safety. So where can our listeners find you online? Well, Twitter is a good place. So at Timothy R. Clark or LinkedIn, or um, you're welcome to come to our website, leaderfactor.com. And uh, we welcome you. We hope you'll come and visit us. For sure. And you also posted a couple days ago that our listeners have the opportunity to go on your website and claim a free book up to the first 50, right? That is true. We will send you a code for a digital copy. Perfect. So we'll be posting um, that link in the show notes. So if you're interested in receiving a copy of Tim's book, you'll be able to go on the website and claim one of those first 50 free book codes. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. And I'm I'm, I'm going to be signing up for that. I'm not telling you to like do the stats. Okay. (laughs) But (laughs) we'll save one. We'll save one for you, Krista. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.